Welcome to The Current, a podcast produced by We Stand for Energy. We Stand for Energy is a community that supports a reliable, affordable, and sustainable energy future for everyone. It is a project of EEI, Edison Electric Institute, the National Trade Association representing U.S. investor-owned electric companies. My name is Brad Vietor, Executive Director of External Affairs at EEI, and I'm your host. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining us again today. We are going to dig into the election discussion and talk a little bit about what happened in national elections here in 2020. And to do that, I'm joined by a colleague of mine at the Edison Electric Institute, Eric Gray. And Eric is the Managing Director of Government Relations, which in EEI speak means he's the person that knows what the heck is going on with Capitol Hill and also what's going on with the administration. So to get into it, Eric, I'm going to ask you, What on earth happened in the presidential election? I mean, is the election really over? I mean, it's still going, right? No, (laughs) Um, no, I, I, you know, I think when you, when you peel back the onion a little bit of what exactly happened with the presidential, and I think this goes down ticket as well is, is one thing I think that was very apparent is a lot of the polling once again, similar to 2016, which is very off. And I think Republicans in general, and I think the president overperformed a lot more than what I think a lot of the kind of the political analysts thought, you know, a lot of these states where you saw polling with double digit leads for the Biden, which a lot of people were questioning anyway, but it ended up being way more tighter uh, in all these battleground states. Uh, but but at the end, you know, I think the result came out the way that I think most people thought it was going to come out. It's just way tighter than I think what anybody was foreseeing. When you look at results in, in Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Michigan, Wisconsin, you know, the, the battlegrounds we all heard about from day one, it was much closer. I, I think the one that actually kind of shocked me that wasn't as close, but you know, I, I, I felt president was going to win was Florida, but I thought it was going to be closer than what it ended up turning out to be. What happened in the U.S. Senate in the past election? I think in the Senate, it's definitely a story of Republicans overperforming, which is kind of a general theme of, of election night that we're seeing, where as the races stand right now, you know, Republicans hold 50 seats compared to Democrats, 48. Uh, technically, it's 46, but the two independents caucus with the Democrats, so it is 48. And we're left with two runoff elections, both in the state of Georgia, that will go off on January 5th between you have. Senator Perdue and Senator Lawfleur are going to be tied up in that January 5th runoff election. Got it. What do you think the difference between varying party control means for for policy, right? Like if Senator McConnell and Republicans maintain the Senate, what is what does that mean? And if Democrats take over and Schumer becomes majority leader, like what, what do you think the difference is between the two? If Republicans maintain that majority, uh, we get to that divided government where there is that check on the administration and on, you know, Speaker Pelosi with House Democrats, where if Democrats were to take that chamber, while it would be a slim majority, so you wouldn't see a uber progressive agenda, you know, they would be able to push forward a lot of different items through the budget reconciliation process, items like potential tax increases or pullbacks on on the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act or various other proposals that they've they've tried to move forward with their agenda. You know, think things like 
items surrounding clean energy, climate change, other items like expansion of social safety net programs, items like that. Um, they can use the, the budget reconciliation, which means they only need 51 votes to do that, which Kamala Harris or Vice Vice President-elect Kamala Harris would be would be the deciding vote there. I think it may be a little bit tougher. Uh, we did see, you know, there's been a lot of talk about really pushing a progressive agenda as far as blowing up the legislative filibuster, you know, stacking the court, things like that. You know, we had Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia come out and said he would not be supportive of that. Um, so even if the Democrats were to pull out the two Georgia runoff seats, you know, that kind of more shift towards the blowing up of the legislative filibuster seems as if it would it would not occur with him coming out and saying he would oppose it. But that's that's kind of what we would see and you know it agenda on on flip on both sides. What do you think this Georgia Senate race is gonna come down to? Like can you give us a little bit of a preview of what these two races are going to look like? Turnout is going to be the biggest question and it's whether you can get both sides to, you know, turn out and push either side over the edge. And that'll be really interesting, especially, you know, a lot of focus is on Democrats and them typically not doing very well in either special elections or runoffs. But you also got to look too of all the excitement from the Republican base that was there was a huge amount driven by the president himself and whether or not he plans to fully participate in that Senate runoff and churning out his voters as well. So it's going to be super interesting, you know, to see which side comes out the most. There's been a lot of talk on national news, obviously, about the presidency, about the U.S. Senate. I think these were big sort of narratives that we saw playing out the few days after the election. But one area where there's not been a ton of discussion is the U.S. House of Representatives. Can you talk about that a little bit and what some of the numbers look like? Heading into this election, no one was talking about the House because the narrative was Speaker Pelosi and the Democratic caucus were guaranteed to pick up more votes. This is one where the complete opposite happened. I think as these races start getting called and, and things whittled down, you could see a scenario, and I think House Minority Leader Ken McCarthy's out there saying that the majority could be dropped down to single digits for House Democrats, where you're going to have re Republicans gaining a huge number of seats. And really, that can heavily change how the House is run from a majority perspective. When you have a razor-thin majority, and you still have Democratic moderates that did win some seats that are still considered Trump districts or Republican districts, it makes governing that that majority even harder, especially when the number of progressives being elected on the Democratic side is only increasing and will try and pull the policy agenda from the speaker and from the administration. So it, it's going to be a real battle once kind of the dust settles and we see where the true numbers at are, you know, if it is only a majority of, you know, that single digits anywhere from seven to say 12, even if it goes above into 12, that's still razor thin and will make it very difficult for Speaker Pelosi to navigate. Let's make some assumptions here, which I know is dangerous, but yeah. uh, let's assume we end up with the Democrats end up with a narrow majority in the House. What do you think that does for policy? People that aren't spending all their time in, in and around Washington may not fully appreciate that a lot of, at least in this last Congress, a lot of these concepts that were a little bit more progressive certainly started in the House of Representatives. Do you think that's still the case with a narrow majority and sort of like what happens as that works its way through the process? 
So are we operating under the belief that the Republicans retain the Senate? Yeah, I'm going to let's let's do this game theory. Let's say that Democrats have a small majority up to that 12 number in the House and Republicans retain the Senate. What does that mean for policy that's for House policy? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think if you have that divided government structure, it definitely moderates policy across the board. And even though, you know, in the House, you you will still have much more progressive ideas being rolled out, being pushed. I think it will cause House leadership to pump the brakes on going too far because, yes, you do set up the negotiations with the Senate. But at the end of the day, President-elect Biden is a former senator and has a very longstanding relationship with the current majority leader, Mitch McConnell. And you always hate saying this, as a House guy, the House becomes less and less relevant as the negotiations on policy move forward, because you're going to be having the Republican majority, you know, leader Mitch McConnell negotiating with the president-elect, and those policies will all modern out. And I think when you look at what could happen and things like that, it it is definitely going to be moderated out. You are not going to see a, a very progressive agenda move forward, which divided government sometimes brings about the best policy and the best end result where ultimately good legislating happens at those points, because then everybody's going to compromise. So let's talk about that Biden agenda a little bit. Operating again in that same world of narrow majority in the House for the Democrats, super narrow majority for Republicans in the Senate, and then obviously Biden in the White House. What do you think the Biden administration is prioritizing on the legislative side of the equation? What do you think is possible? I think COVID relief is something that is very forefront. One of the things that happens the fastest, if it doesn't happen in lame duck first quarter next year, in the first probably two months, they do something quick. It will definitely be much more moderate as we talked about from a policy perspective. I think you saw the house, they passed their heroes act back in May. And that was to the price tag, I think of like 3.4 trillion. And in their negotiating with, with treasury secretary Mnuchin, I think they got all the way down to, to somewhere around 2 billion or I mean, uh, 2 trillion where the Senate still wants less than a trillion. So you're going to see something, you know, much less financially uh, huge, but something will get there. And then, I, and then I think they start pivoting to conversations, and this kind of goes in the recovery part, into conversations about infrastructure. It's both sides. This is something over the last few years that have been, has been heavily debated and talked about. The big question is, do they get it across the finish line? They got to pay for it. And that is some awfully painful choices, gas taxes, things like that, that could be incorporated in that. And with a divided government, that becomes even harder. It could just be a smaller package than this big, grandiose infrastructure bill that they've talked about in the past. Well, let's pivot a little bit and talk about energy policy. You know, what do you think the energy policy priorities are on Capitol Hill and also within a Biden administration? Yeah, I think in an Biden administration, I, I, I think you're looking at more, I mean, it, it's definitely clean energy, climate focused, but I think they will lean if the, you know, the election scenario or, or aftermath that, that we were working with, if, you know, Republicans retain the Senate, it is probably definitely going to be done more on the regulatory space than the legislative, just because the ideas of, you know, moving forward, something in the climate space, like a clean energy standard or, 
cap and trade or carbon tax or any of those things just just with a Republican backstop just aren't going to happen. So this idea of, you've heard a lot of people say re-regulation, that is definitely going to come to the forefront where there's going to be an examination of a lot of the rollbacks of policy that President Trump and his administration had done that you could see those come back to fruition and re-regulate, you know, whether that be the clean power plant or something along that or a variation of that, that seems to be kind of the, the energy focus. Um, I think on Capitol Hill, and this kind of blends with the administration, a lot of energy policy is dictated. There's no national policy. The area where it's probably decided the most is actually in tax policy. So I think that's one area that could surprise people of something potentially getting done. And that gets into those renewable tax credits and the future outlook on those. You know, you have a handful of them that are set to expire at the end of this year. Uh, there's been a lot of discussions of what to do with them. You know, I think if you had that kind of blue wave that, that you referenced, that was the original thought process for this election, you were definitely going to see multi-year extensions of these credits and with a lot of kind of sidecars going with them of, of newer credits, uh, you know, some things surrounding electric transportation and things like that. But I think you're not going to get that big, but you could actually see an extension of these credits and, and maybe even a multi-year extension. You know, one other item that we haven't really talked a ton about today, but I think it was pretty uh, impactful on the election front, was what happened in state legislatures. There was a lot of focus on flipping state legislatures. I think there were eight states that the Democrats had targeted to flip at least one legislative chamber. Arizona was another one. And they were unsuccessful in every single one of those states. In fact, Republicans picked up two chambers. They flipped both chambers in New Hampshire from Democrat to Republican. And I think it's just an important thing to keep your eye on because those are the folks that are going to control the redistricting process and they're going to control, you know, what congressional districts look like. And I think it'll be something that, that we'll certainly be paying attention to as the 2022 races get closer. Well, thank you, Eric. Thanks for some insights from the Beltway. I know the audience appreciates it. I uh, appreciate your time and perspective. We hope that you found this to be an informative 15 minutes, and we look forward to bringing you additional expert insights about the intersection of energy policy and COVID-19. To learn more about the electric industry's response to COVID-19, visit www.eei.org. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts by searching for The Current and We Stand for Energy.